So once I developed my disciplines and I learned what worked for me, worked for me, and by the time I hit 30, I hit my goal, which was to be worth at least a million bucks, have a net worth of at least a million bucks by the time I was 30. Then for me, I wanted to sh- I wanted to tell everybody, like, y'all can do this. Because for most young people, most Black people, most brown people, we don't have someone who looks like us and talks like us or sounds like us teaching how to do these kinds of things. So that why, that's why it was important for me, even though I was working a lot, it was important for me, at least when social media came out, I was like, all right, this is great. I can like blast out, this is what I'm doing. This is how I'm doing. This is where I'm doing it. These are, fu- I, I can't talk on socials very much about like my stock stuff, just right. because, as, you know, with my licenses, I can't give specific advice via social media. But that's why I went very heavy. It's like I talk a lot about my real estate stuff because I, I want people to know that there are ways where you can own things. And I know capitalism is such a big concern in the black community because it has been to our detriment yep. historically. But there, there are other things that you can own. If, you, if you're against owning shares of a corporation, own some real estate, own some art. There are a variety of different things. Own some digital currency. You can own things that fit within your moral compass. The reality yeah. is you have to own something. Because if you don't, you're like, you're not going to have the opportunities from a, access to, to great health care, access to, to good legal counsel. I mean, there, there are so many reasons why having wealth in this country matters. Hello, everyone. My name is Chris Powers, and I want to thank you so much for joining me today on the Fort Podcast. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering real estate, business, entrepreneurship, and investing. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at Fort Worth Chris on Twitter. And if you've enjoyed this show, I would be super grateful if you would follow it on Apple, Spotify, or whatever platform you're listening on. And if on Apple, it would mean a lot if you'd leave a rating or review. And last but not least, you can check all these episodes out on YouTube. So thank you again for joining me and enjoy the show. Aisha, welcome to the show and thank you for coming all the way to Fort Worth to do it. Thank you for having me, Chris. I'm, I'm looking excited. Forward. Yeah, me too. Let's just start off with a little bit kind of about your story growing up and your background and then we'll dive into it. So I'm born and raised in Philly, South Philly. I've talked about the story quite a bit, but I had an interesting childhood. My mom was a teen mom. She had my sister at 16, Okay. me at 19. So my first home was in Pashunk Projects in South Philly which no longer exists. It was probably then at the time before it was torn down, one of the poorest housing projects in the city of Philadelphia. But when you've got a village of great women, strong women, you don't quite realize you're poor. Yeah, like, I had no idea. We were loved immensely. So I didn't know we were poor. My mom, mom was first generation college educated. So because she had that village, my grandmother specifically, who watched my sister and I, my mom was able to put herself through college. And it's funny because my mom just retired She's young. I mean, one of the benefits of having a 19-year-old mom is <laughs> we're like, I was telling her the other day, my hip hurt. My hip is hurting. She's like, really? Like, get yourself together. <laughs> I'm 43. She just turned 63. And she had a retirement party that I went to in Philly, which is why I went to went back to Philly. And one of her old friends who came got up and told a story about how my mom walked in the snow. Like, you know, you hear these stories, like you walk in the snow uphill. Literally, she tells the story about how SEPTA, which is the bus company in Philly, went on strike and my mom had to get to college. So she walked from, if you know Philly, South Philadelphia, past Chunk Projects, was like past Oregon Avenue, all the way up to Temple University, which is in North Philadelphia. I mean, it's, it's, that is far. Damn. So, I mean, she realized like an education was the only way out for her and her kids. So it was either... 
most of her friends. And I just look at my mom, like most of her friends went the complete opposite. I mean, the kids she grew up with, like we're talking like as bad as it was in the 70s and 80s, like in Philly, like hardcore drug use. It was wild. So for her to look at my sister and I and realize like I got to do better for myself and for my family, for my kids, that changed the trajectory of my life. I mean, I, I don't know who I'd be today if if she had made some of the decisions that she made, if my grandmother hadn't been there to make sure that she could support her. So, so I grew up, my mom became a nurse, um, an RN and she, it's, it's funny because she became a nurse. She told this story at her retirement party because of how badly she was treated by the nurse that delivered my sister. So this nurse sees a 16 year old mom. The nurse actually said something to my mom, like, this is what you get. You know, and my mom had to have a C-section and the nurse said something like, now you're always going to have to have a C-section. Like, basically, like, you've ruined your life. And my mom made a decision at 16, I'm going to be a nurse one day and I'm never going to treat someone like this. Right. My mom actually said that at her retirement party, which was full of other nurses, because my mom has worked in at Temple where she went to college. She's worked at that hospital, which is in the heart of North Philadelphia, which is a pretty rough section of Philly. She said that specifically because a lot of the nurses there probably treat patients like I mean they, they you see the worst of it yeah in, in North Philly so she said that because it's still important for her today for no one to be treated like she was yeah so she became a nurse which was great because my sister and I got the opportunity to go to temple for free yeah so I got a free college education so all these stories you hear about like what do I do with my student loans? I got 300,000. Like, I, I can't relate to that. Mm-hmm. Um, and even if, even if I did have to pay for college, I mean, Temple, when I went from 1996 to 2000, again, in the heart of North Philadelphia, I think the entire, my entire college degree would have cost me $20,000. Yeah. Like all four years. So, you yeah. know, dirt cheap to go. Yeah. So what my mom's tuition reimbursement didn't pay for, I worked at a bank while I was in college as a bank teller. They paid my summer sessions because I had, a, I had two majors and a minor. I like, I wanted to do it all. Yeah. <laughs> so my mom's tuition reimbursement didn't pay for everything. So I was picking up additional majors and a minor. So my job paid for what that didn't. So I did that and became a licensed stockbroker right out of college. I mean, that was just kind of grace and fate and hard work. And I knew I was interested in all things money. I always have been. So yep. became a broker in 2000. And I've been doing that since. And I've been just looking for opportunities to park some of the capital that I make in a pretty lucrative field. You've done a pretty good job of that. We're going to get into that. But before we go further in there, is there something, and I usually ask this at the end, but is there something about your mom or your grandmother or you that did change the trajectory? I usually ask the question to people, is there something that happened early in your life that changed who you are today? Because I've done 180 of these episodes and usually everybody's like, something happened early. And so what gave your mom that? Or was it your grandmother? Or how did it start? I mean, it certainly started. My, my grandma, the grandmother who we lost in May of 2019, was an amazing person. Yep. I mean, just an incredible woman. Yep. Took care of everybody, loved everybody. I mean, and that and was like insanely intelligent. Right? Yep. I mean, she just just never went to college. I'm not even I'm not even sure if my Nana graduated from high school, to be honest, and was just like incredibly intelligent and loved fiercely. And people underestimate the power of of a loving family. I mean, that is a that's a hack. Yeah. Right. So it started with my grandmother, of course, and then that passed to my mom. And I remember 
how my life could have gone in a completely different direction. I mean, I grew up in South Philly and my mom worked a lot. So by the time we moved out of the projects, my grandmother was still living there. So we'd, we'd go and stay with her uh, while we were younger kids. But when we became teenagers, we were, you know, or even younger than teenagers, we were latchkey kids, right? My mom worked as a nurse. She worked 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. So yep. we had a lot of alone time, right? Yep. So being a kid growing up in South Philly, you start looking around and you're influenced by your community. And yep. our heroes in my community in South Philly in the 80s, 90s were drug dealers, yep. right? Like they had the most money. They had the nicest cars and were great people. They were entrepreneurs, yep. right? So those were the folks that I looked at and saw and had and formulated my own plan on how I was going to, because I, I was an entrepreneur in the making. And I was like, you know, all right, like, so that's what they're doing. And then this person comes with the money, this person sells it. I was like, all right, I can figure that out. <laughs> so I had a whole plan. I worked at McDonald's. That was my first job in high school. And I've always been a saver. Like, I mean, I had, I, I mean, I, we're talking in the, in the nineties, early nineties, I had like thousands of dollars saved, which for a kid wasn't given to me. I just saved it. Yeah. Working, making $4 and 25 cents an hour. I mean, that was good money. So my plan was I was going to be the buyer. Like I had the money, the capital. Yep. I was going to have like employees who would sell weed for me. Yep. And I remember we had come up with a plan. Like I was, I knew exactly how I was going to run my operation. I had different high schools, like yep. I had clientele. <laughs> <laughs> so I remember my mom com comes into my room one, one night and she's like, you know, I don't know what you're thinking about doing. Don't do it. Yeah. And she's like, I don't know if I've, I've told her this. I've, I've mentioned it on a few podcasts or interviews, but. I don't know if I've ever told her, like, she, and I pretended, of course, that I'm like, mom, what are you talking about? Like, she was also very strict, right? Yeah. We in a very Christian household. Like, we couldn't listen to a lot of secular music, and she was pretty strict. So when she said that to me, of course, to her, I pretended I had no idea what she was talking about, but I decided not to do it. And I just think, like, there are people today still incarcerated for weed charges. I mean, weed is not a big deal today. It's legal in, yep. in a lot of states, but... Who knows how my life would have been different had, had I gone that route. Yeah. It's interesting because so many of us entrepreneurs have very similar stories. I mean, it's you know, by hook or by crook, I'm going to run and build a business. Yep. And, for, and for me, I go hard in everything. Like I, I tell people all the time, thank God my life that didn't go that direction. Yeah, because I would have been Griselda Blanca. Like, <laughs> I mean, I would like, it's go big or go home. Like, I, you know, I would have started with weed and then I would have like, oh no, this is pet, this is chump change. I mean, I would have, I know I would have gone yep. all, all the way and, and completely wrecked my life. So for years, I said, I'm self-made. I'm self-made. I'm yeah. self-made. You know, that's arrogance. That was my own arrogance. I'm pretty arrogant. But I had to realize, like, no, you're not. You know, you, like, think of all the women in your family and men in my family who helped shape and define and, and mold and pushed me in the right direction. Yeah. Because I, I certainly wouldn't be where I am today. If, for sure. Yeah, on my own. Yeah. Well, all right. Well, let's move into like a little bit of money then, because you said money's up, like money's been on the mind forever. Yep. Why has money always been on your mind? And then let's talk about what doing, what having money, and we can kind of get into mud to millions and things. That what has that done for your life, and what is having that mentality? And did your mom put that in you, or is that your own hustle? That is entirely me. Okay. No one with in my family was was or really is good with money. Mm -hmm. So like even as a kid, like I was, what was that show? It was Family Ties. I remember Alex P. Keaton was a kid. He was like a young kid obsessed with money, and he was like my hero as okay. a kid. I mean, I've always just been obsessed with 
I can keep a buck. I'd get my allowance. I'd put it in a shoebox under my bed. Like, I don't need to spend it. My, my sister was like more fashion obsessed. She wanted the nice, nicest clothes. I, I've never cared about those things. Yep. I've always kind of been like a Scrooge McDuck hoarder of money, right? <laughs> Which is one of the reasons why, like, um, I donate pretty generously every year. A part of that is my upbringing. My mom taught us to tithe very early on, yep. right? Like, and I used to, I was faithful for years. 10% of my income goes to, at first it was churches. And now I just, I make it more who's doing good in communities. Yep. And I still do that to this day. And I do that, one, because I believe in the pr principle of tithing, but also because I believe in in giving. And I, like, and I know how, like, it's mine, it's mine, I can be. And that actually helps me as well to give, right? Yep. So that's always just been innate in me. So when I found a career in finance, that was just kind of second nature. And it was great because it taught me how to invest. Right. Like, yeah. you know, I mean, I was 21 or 22 when I became a licensed stockbroker. I didn't know what I was doing. I mean, like I, I passed the series seven, <laughs> you know, I sat in these training classes and but you don't really learn until you're doing it until you get burned. I mean, I remember my first investment was in a mutual fund, a technology mutual fund in like the late 90s, because I was like, oh, the technology is going crazy. I should be buying these dot com mutual funds. Right. <laughs> and of course, subsequently lost like 70 percent of my investment within like a year and a half or so. But so I learned trial by error on it's not enough. And I think I talk about this in my book. It's not enough just to be a saver. That was like, I thought I could just save my way to millions. I mean, I wasn't at 425 an hour. I certainly wasn't making that much money as a bank teller. I wasn't making that much, even as a, even as a stockbroker early on in my career, it, it dawned on me, like, I'm not going to get there by just saving my money. So I've got to right. figure this out. How do I exponentially increase my wealth? by having my money just work for me as, you know, as much as I work for it, or if not harder. You got to own some shit. You got to own some shit that you do. That That's you do. Like my favorite thing that you say. You know, and it, thank you. <laughs> um, it's, it's not mine. I don't know where I got it from originally, but it's so true. And our own experiences kind of govern how we invest. Yep. Right? And one of the things I, I talk about quite a bit is when it comes to my love for real estate, I think some of the books I read early on, I was a, I was like a, a almost drug dealing nerd. Right. Yeah. So I read a lot. And a lot of the books that I read, I can't remember the passage. Maybe it was Alice Walker, Tony Morrison. In some book I read, the author talked about, you're always going to need land. People need a place to live and a place to die. Both require land. And that kind of stuck with me. And then my mom, I, I tell this story, my mom sold our childhood house in, I think, 1998 or 1999 mm -hmm. for a ridiculously low amount of money, right? She sold this house for, I think, thirty-five dollars or $40,000. It was dirt cheap. And before she sold it, I told her, I said, mom, don't sell this house, right? This is a gold mine. It, like, I know it's rough now. I mean, it was a rough neighborhood. We called it Saigon, yep. the neighborhood. It was such a rough neighborhood, but the proximity to downtown Philly, I mean, you could walk to downtown Philly. I mean, it was great location. Yeah. So she was nervous. She sold the house because she didn't, we were moving. We needed more space. She didn't want to have two mortgages. She's like, what if my tenant doesn't pay rent? I mean, it was all the fears that people have on keeping property. She sold it. I was in college and and I was right, right? Sure yeah. enough, the property, it's worth at least 20X what it was when she sold it and went up like shortly after she sold it. And for a while, I was so angry about that. Like that was our inheritance, right? Like that was our legacy. That was our fortune. But in retrospect, I'm so glad it happened because that governed how I invest. Yep. Like I hate selling things. The hoarder I was as a child with my money under a shoebox, I became that times 10. Like, if I buy something, I'm never getting rid of it. And that, that experience 
Why did she sell? Did she want the money or she just she wanted scared. a new house? Or? She, she was scared. I mean, you, you think about it, and we've talked about this kind of offline, mm-hmm. had it dawned on me that I could have bought it. I mean, I was in college. I was working. I had that mortgage on a $35,000, $40,000 sale would have been 300 bucks a month, 400 bucks, like yeah. nothing. So it was a cheap mortgage. Why she sold it, I think she was really just scared. Yeah. She had a tenant. We weren't living there right at the time she had a tenant there and the tenant wanted to buy it. Yep. And she was nervous that if she didn't agree to selling it, that the tenant would say, all right, well, I'm leaving. Yep. And now you've got to pay the mortgage on your new place and this mortgage until you find another tenant. Yeah. And that scared her. She was already like kind of living paycheck to paycheck. So I think the fear of having both mortgages was just more than she could and she could stand. You said early on when we were talking, you said the projects that you grew up in, they don't even exist anymore. Yeah. And I'm going to one of Russell Lowry's questions from Twitter just about gentrification. Yep. Because I would say that's probably the case for a lot of areas that were kind of prolific, maybe in the 80s, 90s. They no longer exist anymore. What do you think about it? Like, how does that impact you? And what is that project that you used to live in now? Is it? They're building townhomes there. If they haven't already gone up, they're building them. Gentrification. To be clear, the displacement of people who grew up are poor and can no longer afford the communities they lived in. Yeah. Right. At the same time, there's this I mean, home ownership is one of the primary drivers of wealth in America. Mm-hmm. Right. My concern is people often take issue with a community, a black community, evolving, growing, and developing. Yeah. So if you got a predominantly black community where there are predominantly black owners, if home ownership is one of the primary dri- drivers of wealth in the country, why would you want your neighborhood to stay devalued? Right. You know, you, if you look at predominantly white communities, which are historically valued at higher values than black communities, they are able to take equity out to put their kids through college, to buy other investments, take that capital equity from their properties and use it to exponentially increase their wealth. Yep. If our communities stay devalued, we don't have the opportunity to take that equity out and put our kids through college. It's one of the reasons why Black college graduates have a substantially high, I think it's like 46% higher student loan debt. You know, so when you look at all the ways that our community's not increasing in value, how it hurts us, that's a problem. So we get to this point where in Black communities, we see development happening and we're, we're against it. Development's coming whether you like it or not. Right. The key is to be a buyer. Right. To be an owner. Yep. To own some shit. I'll own some shit, baby. Right. So I've been very vocal about a lot of this on social media for a long time. I mean, I go back to some of my 2010, 2011, 2012 Facebook and Instagram posts. I mean, I was talking about buying in communities that that everybody looked at me like nobody's going to want to live there. Like that's that's the ghetto. That's the hood. I mean, like black people were like. There's, I talk a lot about black flight, right? So our brightest and, and most educated black people leaving communities, like like running from yep. communities that we grew up in. And I get it. Poverty is traumatizing, right? These communities that we grew up in, I mean, we've, we've got a lot of trauma embedded in those streets. So we ran from them and didn't look back. So when I went back and realized, one, these communities that we come from still need development. They need us as Black owners. They need, when I was a kid growing up, before my mom bought her house, we she rented. And the only landlord I knew was Mr. Mitch, a white guy, right? Yeah. Like it never, it never dawned on me as a kid that 
a black woman could be a landlord. So when I go back to my communities and I do all my own, I do all my own property management, my tenants who are probably 90, 95% black, their kids see me, right? Like they see that's Aisha. She's mom's landlord, right? A lot of my tenants want my, want their kids to see Here's, this is Aisha. She's our she's our landlord. She owns a lot of property. They say it with such pride, so that their kids will know, you know, you can own that some nice. property. Yeah, like I, I I love that shit, right? And so you're spreading that your message is more of that. Like, how do you stop the flight? How do you how, if and if nothing else? Because I never want to tell people what where, where they can live, yeah, right. where they can't live. And I understand that in most of these communities, the school system, the school districts are tr- are trash, right? You know, you got parents who are raising their kids and I'm like, can your kids fight? Like, you know, so I, I don't, I don't want to tell people where they should or have to live, but can we at least be investors in that community? Yep. Can we at least show ownership in those communities? Because it empowers people that live there. Yep. You know, if she can own it, then I can buy a house in the same community. So as it pertains to gentrification, my concern is always us fighting gentrification to the extent that it hurts us to our own detriment. Right. We do want to see our property values elevate oh. because at the end of the day, that helps us win. Like you said, it helps with refinance yep. or reinvest in the community. I mean, I see it and I, but I totally get a lot of the, like you said, the projects were built next to downtowns yep. back in the mid 1900s. So it's now that these cities are growing, it's like, it's in the path of growth. How do you stay on it? That's that kind of gets into mud to millions and kind of your big message. Yep. How'd that all start? I mean, money's always been something that has been a huge focus for me. And then once I kind of figured out how to be a disciplined investor, that was like that was what was so difficult for me because when you're <laughs> when you're very anxious about money, you 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 get greedy, you start making these decisions for like fast money, right? Like, you know, so like the world we're living in right now. <laughs> basically, yeah. Yeah. Which I try to stay away from. Yeah. Right. NFTs and people are looking at me like I'm like Warren Buffett. Like, <laughs> no, I don't own any Bitcoin. Like, because I I learned some disciplines early on that I won't deviate from. And I'm not saying that NFTs or, or digital currency don't make sense. I'm I'm not saying that at all. But I developed very specific and clear disciplines for me that I try not to deviate from. I mean, it, for me, it's it's almost like someone who who swore off of alcohol, like drinking again. Like I would I would go off the deep end. Yeah. So once I developed my disciplines and I learned what worked for me, worked for me, and by the time I hit 30, I hit my goal, which was to be worth at least a million bucks. I've been net worth of at least a million bucks by the time I was 30. Then for me, I wanted to, sh- I wanted to tell everybody, like, y'all can do this. Because for most young people, most black people, most brown people, we don't have someone who looks like us and talks like us or sounds like us teaching how to do these kinds of things. So that right. why, that's why it was important for me even though I was working a lot, it was important for me, at least when social media came out, it's like, all right, this is great. I can like blast out. This is what I'm doing. This is how I'm doing it. This is where I'm doing it. These are, f- I, I can't talk on socials very much about like my stock stuff just right. because, as, you know, with my licenses, I can't give specific advice via social media, but that's why I went very heavy. It's like, some, I talk a lot about my real estate stuff because I, w- I want people to know that there are ways where you can own things. And I know Capitalism is such a big concern in the black community because it has been to our detriment yeah. historically. But there, there are other things that you can own. If, you, if you're against owning shares of a corporation, own some real estate, own some art. There are a variety of different things. Own some digital currency. You can own things 
that fit within your moral compass. The reality yeah. is you have to own something because if you don't, you're like you're not going to have the opportunities from a access to to great healthcare, access to to good legal counsel. I mean, there there are so many reasons why having wealth in this country matters. Yep. So it was important for me just based on my experiences growing up and even still investing in the hood and seeing what happens in black communities, predominantly black communities. It was important for me to push that message out there. Yep. So it started with social media and then burgeoned into courses and classes and, and books and just making sure that I could send that message out. Is there a story that comes to mind of somebody that took your course or listened and where they are today? You know, I get so many DMs and emails about like, hey, I've been following you since since 2011 or 2012 on Facebook or, or Instagram. And, you know, I've got like X number of properties now and you have no idea how you've changed or impacted my life. I mean, it, it's like it's it, it's like humbling. Like sometimes I'm in my DMs and my emails are like, crying. Like, yep. so it's cool. That's so awesome. Yeah, it, it really is cool. When you were talking about like, how was money talked when you were growing up? What was how was money perceived in your world or explain to me like how money played a role in your life and then maybe like the broader community just to get a sense of like the challenges you have to overcome to want to be involved with money and wealth and everything else. No, bro. I learned about money watching Trading Places, uh, yeah. the movie. Yeah. <laughs> that was like, <laughs> no, we, we, you didn't, we didn't talk about money. We like, I was the barterer in the house. Like we always, my mom was, would always like let her friends who were recovering addicts, like stay with us for, for a while. So I was like a barterer, right? Where yeah. I, I had chores. I had to do my dish. Like I learned about money, like paying my uncle Woody, like to do my dishes. Yeah. Right. Like I'll, I'll go buy you some Lucy's from the corner store, like some cigarettes to like do my dishes. Like that's how I learned. I mean, watching television, watching movies like Trading Places, Wall Street. I mean, that was, that was kind of the extent of what we learned, like what I learned about money as, right. as a kid. Like in our, in most of our communities, it wasn't like a, a conversation that we had. My mom was really good about giving us an, an allowance or rewarding good behavior, like in, in school, like good grades. Yep. I remember she would, um, I think we got like $10 an A, $5 a B on a report card. So I'd, I'd load up. <laughs> and, and and my mom was my mom was great with knowing because our school was very, our grades were very important to her. My mom was great about knowing what incentivized us. Like yep. she she knew how important money was to me. Yep. I got nothing for a C. Like you bring a C home, my mom's like, "Why didn't you tell me you needed tutoring?" I'm like, "But my friends got D's and their their parents are happy they didn't fail." Yeah. <laughs> so she, yeah, so that was probably the extent of of learning money at home. And then once I got to, I started working as a bank teller. Like that, working as a bank teller in college was probably one of the best eye-opening experiences for me because you you get to place a person with their bank accounts. Right. Right. And that was like super eye-opening for me. Like it would be the person who'd walk in like super lavish. Yeah. Right. And I'm like, oh, they are loaded. And right? then you'd like, see their bank. Account. And then you'd see their bank accounts like overdraft. <laughs> like they're putting in money to get back to zero. Yep. I'm like, damn, sis, that's how you live it, right? Like no one, and, and, and just you and I know, we make that eye contact like, wow, girl, like, yeah. you need to get it together. Or, you know, and or the person who would walk in looking like me, right? And I'd be, you know, initially I'd be thinking like, oh, you know, you poor little thing. Um, I went to the bank. I have a, one of my multi-units has a coin-operated 
um, machine in the basement. So I had like a whole bunch of coins I had to take into the bank. And I, I when I like walk through, I look good today, right? Yeah. Compared to how I normally look. <laughs> so I walk in the bank and I've got like a bunch of change, like all, you know, just kind of like, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, it's some of it's rolled. And I got like, and, and the girl looks at me like, oh, oh. Like, <laughs> bless her heart. And she's like, how long did it take you to get all this? And I was like, well, I got a machine, a you know? Yeah. So I just looked at her face when she like made the deposit and saw the balance. Oh. And she, she like she looked at me like we made eye contact and I'm like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it, that was an eye opening experience for me. And then when I started working as a, as a financial advisor, it was that times 10, right? Yeah. Like that's where I started to see real wealth. And again, the folks who weren't very materialistic, weren't very, and that, that was a good confirmation for me because I've never been into that kind of stuff. And as my life evolves today, you know, I'm just be I'm just moving to a different level now. Those things are still not important to me. Yeah. Like like Birkin bags. You know, I mean, I I hear they appreciate in value. That's just not important to me. I'd rather ha- I'd rather pay that amount for a piece of art. Yep. So, you know, those are are, are different things that just kind of help me learn about money. And of course I'd read, I'd read a lot of books. I mean, as a, as a new financial advisor, I worked at the, at the time when I started out of college, the company was American Express Financial Advisors. We spun off and became a different company, but we had a a pretty good leadership program because they were hiring a bunch of like 22 year olds out of college. So they put us through a, a pretty rigorous curriculum. So we had to read books like Who Moved My Cheese and Think and Grow Rich and The Millionaire Next Door, all those books that affirmed all the things that I just kind of like had thought in my head made sense, but it was pretty cool to see it in practice. And for somebody that's like totally broke and you, in your first two steps are change your mindset, cut your expenses. Mm -hmm. When you say change your mindset and I haven't read the book yet, what is change your mindset? Cutting expenses seems more obvious, but when you're telling someone change your mindset, what are they changing? So it's really just how you think about money, right? Yeah. There are some of us that think like money is um, money is just something like I, I'm just thinking of like different ways to spend. Yeah. Right. So I get money to spend it. Yep. I mean, that's literally how most people think. Like, all right, you you give me you give me a thousand bucks. Great. What could a thousand bucks buy me? Yep. So I I think the 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 root of building wealth starts with when I get a dollar, when I get a buck, when I get a thousand bucks. You gave me a hundred thousand today. What is this for? Right. Most people, I don't think have the, have the mindset that money should be used to, to buy my freedom. I, I tweeted something the other day and I try to keep my twit, my, my social media content relatively simple and easy to understand. Yep. I tweeted something the other day that how could you not essentially be paying yourself first? Right. right. Most, most people work a nine to five and they hate their jobs. Yeah. Right. So, Imagine you work 40 hours a week for a boss you hate, a job you hate, next to coworkers you hate. Imagine going through all of that, putting yourself through all that, and you don't pay yourself first. Right. Right? Most people are thinking, I get that paycheck, and now I, I can figure out, and if I got extra money, how can I figure out, like, what else to buy? Yep. If you don't change that first, it doesn't matter how much you make. Yep. Right? Like, you could, you could make 50000 if you don't change your mindset, you're going to be poor. You can make a hundred, like a double your pay. If you don't change your mindset, you're still going to be poor. So it doesn't, none of the other stuff matters yep. until you're thinking, how can I use this to essentially bridge my way to freedom? Yep. It's like you just said, I, there's people that are worth a million a year that are poor. They got 
everything is out the door. Like so many Americans live their life. How much more am I making? I can get one more payment going now. Yep. Lifestyle inflation. Yeah. It's a freaking, it's quicksand, man. Yeah. It's, and working as a, I work in personal finance. I see it. I see people who make a hundred thousand a year can save more than people who make a million bucks a year. It's, their, their mortgage is ridiculous. Their, the private school educations are ridiculous. The car payments are ridiculous. Like you spend that in clothes, Scott. Like, yeah. So, I mean, it's, it pay, I'm not going to say income doesn't matter. I mean, yeah. it certainly, it certainly helps if you can exponentially increase your, your income, which is one of the things I talk about, because that helps exponentially increase your wealth. If you can figure out how to keep your lifestyle modest, yep. then you, you can cut your expenses and increase your wealth simultaneously while having the mindset. I mean, that's that's how you really blow it out of the water. That's how you get going. I mean, and that's what I did. I mean, I was able to essentially keep my lifestyle relatively low for a, a very long time. My expense, so my expenses were super low. And then my income just kept like jumping. I yep. mean, like my income, like I became a franchise owner in 2014. So I went from our employee channel within my company to the franchise. My, my income like shot up. Yep. Most people in that, increase would have gotten bigger house, bigger car, bigger dog, <laughs> bigger everything, right? Bigger cat. Like, what the hell's that? So, like, literally, people get bigger cats. Like, they've got these, like, little tigers in the house. Like, so, but my, like, my, I stayed in this exact same apartment in Philly. You know, my, my rent stayed the same. Like, I'm still turning out lights. You know? And what'd you do with all that money? I parked it in real estate. Yeah. Most of it. Most of it. I mean, I, I max out a retirement plan, a workplace retirement plan every year. But then, so, and in, in the good news is in my backyard, I could buy properties cheap in Philly. So, I mean, I was racking up between 2011 and 2018. I was just buying as much as I possibly could in Philly. Not enough. I mean, I should have, in retrospect, I should have been leveraging more. I mean, who knew? Yeah. Were you paying cash for everything? For for the most part. So early on from 2011 until 2014, when I was still in the employee channel, my income wasn't as high. I was I was taking loans. I was doing the, the Burr method. Yeah. What's um, that? That's the BRRR, the buy, renovate, rent, oh. refinance, and then repeat. So essentially I was leveraging. But once I once 2014 came, I was almost all cash. And then I started paying off a lot of the mortgages that I was taking between... 2011 and 2014. Let's take a quick break to highlight this episode's sponsor, Juniper Square. If you aren't familiar with Juniper Square, it's an easy to use all-in-one investment management software designed specifically for real estate owners. We have been using it at Fort Capital for several years now, and it has completely revamped the experience we're able to provide our investors through reporting, management, and efficiency. Here's a bit more on how Fort Capital utilizes the platform. You know, your, your, your tenants are your customers, but your real customers are your investors. And the real estate business, the lifeblood is the ability to have capital. It's an expensive game and being able to treat them, um, you know, like royalty. And when you have a lack of resources or you're smaller, it's very tough to be able to report in a way that, again, those high net worth individuals are expect are used to seeing. And so for years, we had either tried building stuff from scratch. It never worked. We would try hiring these companies that, that wanted to charge us a quarter million dollars a year for investor reporting. And it just never worked. And when we found Juniper, um, it aligned with our mission to provide our investors not only great returns, but a great experience in achieving those returns, which goes back to transparency, communication, their ability to know where their money is. 
You can check out episode 37 to listen to my full conversation with Brandon or visit cjunipersquare.com for more information. That's S-E-E junipersquare.com. And now back to the show. So when you got in, what set the set the stage? What was the market like? Again, we had Scary. just gone out of 0809. Yep. 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 So so I bought my first property in 2002. Okay. Right. That was my first house. Hell yeah. And I bought it. Great neighborhood. I still own it. You don't sell really. I, I really. Yeah. There are a couple that got away and I think of them longingly. <laughs> One day I was driving by and saw a house I sold and I just kind of sat there for a while. Like the, the owner was probably looking out the window like a weirdo. <laughs> So I, I bought this place in 2002. It was my intention because I was living with my mom. So I graduated from college. I was working as a new broker. And again, great mom. Like my mom wasn't really like, she didn't want anything from me. Like if I'm 43 today, if I if I was living at home with my mom, she would like love it. Like, yeah. She's got a room for me always. I love it. So my intention was to buy this place, staying at home, working as a broker. I was going to buy it and then rent it. So I was going to be a landlord staying at like second floor bedroom, right? Yeah. And then I found out like last minute, like, hey, this is a, it's an owner oc type situation. You have to, yeah, I have to move in. So my mom was like crying, I'm crying. So I ended up buying it and then I house hacked. So I got a roommate who paid for basically all of the mortgage. Yep. So I held that property. I bought another rental property in 2004 and then I moved to Virginia for work in 2004. And so I just had tenants and dealt with being a landlord long distance, which was fine. And then the market crashed in 2009. And then it really kept going down in Philly for a while. And it bottomed probably right around 2010, 2011. Okay. And it was hard to get financing. It was hard. Like, there weren't a lot of wholesalers out there. There weren't, like, like the market. It was, like, tumbleweed, right? Yeah. So I took a home equity line of credit from that first house I bought in 2002. So we're talking from 2002. Now it's 2000, 2011. Yeah. So nine years had passed. I had a bunch of equity in it. The house was either paid off or almost paid off. I took a, a HELOC, a $54,000 HELOC. And I was scared. Like, we didn't know, like, is that it? Like, is this thing going to keep keep dropping? Like, are we at the bottom? I just knew that there wasn't a lot of competition to buy. This one house in South Philly. So going back to my story of where I lived, that house my mom sold, I couldn't afford there by 2011. It was already expensive. Yep. So I just went a little further south. Like, what can I afford here? No, it's still expensive. A little further south. And I got to Washington Avenue, which is like a big divide in South Philly. Okay. And everyone was like, don't go south of Washington. Like, girl, that is the ghetto. Yeah. Right? And I'm like, wait, so one block north of Washington is fine, but one block south of, of, of Washington, like, don't go. And they're like, exactly. Um, like, I'm going south. I'm like, you guys are idiots. <laughs> it's like, there's no like physical barrier. There's no moat. There's no canal yeah. that's like that's stopping people. Eventually, I will be in the wave. So I went south of Washington. That first property I bought, I added a little bit of money out of my pocket for the acquisition and did a, a very light cosmetic renovation, bought the house, and then got a tenant in it, a really cool tenant. I met her grandmother. It was I felt really good about her. And then I took a loan against it because I paid cash for it. I took a loan against it. My tenant, of course, paid my rent plus, uh, paid my mortgage plus some. And I took the money that I got from the loan and I went around the corner and I bought, I did the exact same thing. And then same thing. And then I took a loan against that one. And then I bought another house back when the first block that I bought a house. I mean, I literally just kept doing it over and over and over. Yeah. And I was like, hey, this is easy. And then at some point I started noticing the prices were creeping up. And then I was like, maybe we were at the bottom because then there started to be more buyers. Banks started easing up on on financing. 
prices started getting a little crazier. And then I got priced out of that neighborhood. Yeah. So I'm like, all right, now, great. I need a, I need another neighborhood. So I just started looking for different parts of Philadelphia where it just didn't make sense to me, either based on a hospital nearby or a college nearby or great access to transportation. You can get into the city very quickly. I started looking for different parts of Philly that it just didn't make sense, that right. it was depressed. So I started buying. And, and when I went franchise in 2014, my income exponentially increased. And I'm like, well, I could go ball out or I could take this and park this in some real estate. So I started- Which is balling out. Which is basically balling out, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> I was broke, but, you know, had assets. Yeah. yeah. So I start, and that's, so, so that's how I started building a pretty decent sized real estate portfolio, which is great for cash flow. I mean, I don't have loans on most of my buildings. And it's crazy because now that there's a massive single family home shortage. So I was mostly buying single families early on. And then I started buying small multis, two units to four units towards the back end of that. But like my single families that were in like my most questionable hoods. Yeah. I remember in, in one neighborhood, I was paying like 8500 6500 having to reno them, of course, but like paying almost nothing for the house. They're now appraising for close to 200000 170000 180000 That's awesome. Which is just silly to me. Like, and I'm you were like, buying them for what? 10, I, 15, 20, 25? Less, less. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, it's just silly to me. So fortunately, I was buying when I was buying in retrospect. I should have been financing to the hilt and, and had buying everything. Yeah, buying you know everything I possibly could. If we could see tomorrow, we wouldn't be sitting here right now. Monday morning quarterback is easy to. That's it, easy, baby. Yeah. Hindsight's twenty twenty. Yep. So, how do you think about it then? Right now, your properties are worth probably more than they've ever been worth as long as this earth has been around. Yep. We're at all time highs. Yep. But you've got cash flow. Yep. I could sit here today and say, well, the market could crash tomorrow. You should have sold yesterday because you could buy it back for. So how how does that go through your head? Because you we talked about this on Twitter this morning. I said, we're going to chat about it. You said hold forever. Mm-hmm. So it, if it goes down 30 percent, how do you think about that? As long as the cash flow stays good. Or? All I care about is cash flow. Yeah. I never bet on appreciation. Yeah. You know, I mean, if, if I if I did, I'd be I wouldn't have been investing in Philly. I, right. I would have been in L.A. or New York or D.C appreciation because it's not certain it's not guaranteed run me money through cash flow right that's all i really care like even now when i'm trying to structure my deals i'm like what's the cash flow look like they're like well we could pay you this up front no yeah just give it like i like a good old monthly check yeah you know like a quarterly (laughs) check is just fine we're we're good and that's and that's i've always like recurring (laughs) revenue you know, in, in my career, recurring revenue is a big thing. I get paid on assets that I've been managing for dozens of years at this point, 20 years at this point, 21 years at this point, not dozens, but a couple of decades. So recurring revenue, when that notion hit me, like as an asset manager, I'm like, this is like underrated. Yep. You know, the, the ability to just get paid on an asset over and over, like that is what appeals to me. I don't need lump sums of money. Like I'd much rather bet on something paying me over time. Yep. So if the market does pull back 20 or 30%, it sucks because it bruises your, like my ego. I'd be like, oh, I'm poor. Uh, you know, yeah. so, but, but as long as my cash flow is, um, good. is good. And that's always why I was always very nervous about a lot of leverage, right? I would be nervous if the market pulled back 30% or something crazy. I'd be nervous if my building is now worth less than what I owe on it. Yeah. Because then I feel, I feel like 
if the shit hits the fan, I can't even sell this thing. Like yep. I am in trouble. Yep. That to me is trouble. So one of the reasons why, especially early on, I was, even when I was refinancing, doing the cash out refinances, I was like 50, 60%. I don't like no, no, no tricky business. Here. Yeah. So it's always scary to me, the idea of being underwater. So that's the only way I would be a little nervous about a big pullback. But since most of my buildings are are not even leveraged. You just don't even think about it. And most of my rents and a lot of investors would argue about this, but a part of my investing is also social impact. Right. Most of my rents are below fair market value. Yeah. So even if rents dropped, mine wouldn't. I mean, yeah. I'm probably where they dropped to. Right. So. Well, let's talk about that for a second. You could charge more. Mm-hmm. You don't. Mm-hmm. What's the social impact? Not displacing people who grew up in a community is important to me. Yep. Right? Like. So the majority of your tenants have been in the neighborhood for a long time. Yep. Yep. I could charge more for my units. And I don't for for one. I, I want to make sure that people who, I mean, they're, they're, they're not cheap. People call me all the time like, you know, you got you got a three bedroom for $750. No. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I do not. <laughs> But they're still well below where I where I could go. Yep. So I put a lot of quality work into my units. It's important to make sure that I put quality products in the communities I serve. But I also I don't like turnover, right? Like yep. the two months without rent, and then I got to paint. I got to do. I got to replace the carpet. So I like I don't want to do all that. Yep. And because I do most of my management on my own, so I save on the management fee. Yep. My tenants tend to stay a, a long time, which is another reason why I like single families. Yep. Right. My apartments, like I turn those things over constantly. My yeah. sink, my three bedrooms, I think the neighbors probably think my tenants own them. Yeah. Like they're, they stay. And because I don't knock them over the head with rent increases, I generally increase rents when my, my costs go up. Yep. So blame the city of Philadelphia and that tax hike if your rent went up. But for the most part, I, I tend to leave my tenants. My, I, leave, I leave them alone. They stay longer. You don't have turnover. You don't have a ton of CapEx and maintenance work. Yep. And I would imagine by saving, by them being able to save a couple hundred bucks a month or whatever, the the pri- they can do better things with that money that ultimately help the whole area. Generally, when they leave, it's, you've been a great landlord, the yeah. best landlord, I'm going to buy a house. I mean, that's, that's generally, awesome. I mean, and that, that, like, it sucks for me because it's like, damn it, you're leaving. You've been yeah. there, you know, eight years. So like, I got to really like do some work in this property, but. I mean, it's, it's, it's awesome. Like you're leaving my place to go buy it, go, go buy a place, go buy a place, which meant that you could save yeah. because the rent wasn't, wasn't killing. you. We don't talk about it too much, but we have to talk about one of your real estate projects okay. that you did over the internet basically uh, yeah. for a year yeah. in LA. Yep. How'd you find the deal? Why'd you go to LA? You designed a, a knockout kick-ass house. What, what was going on there? So, you know, I've always loved Southern California since I was a kid, it's dawning on me later. Like, where did this stuff come from in my head? I was watching, um, my sister told me, she's like, remember you used to love Jackie Collins novels? Yeah. It's like, you're right, I did. <laughs> um, she's like, there's a documentary on Netflix about her. And so I start, I'm watching the documentary and one of her first books was Hollywood Wives or something like that. And I'm like, I love that book. Is that why I loved that? I mean, I was, I was like hiding from my mom at 14, reading Jackie Collins Smut, which largely talked about these neighborhoods. And I'm like, oh, these people are living. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so I remember, I remember going to LA the first time and um, 
I think it was like right out of college or a couple of years as a as a new broker. And I was like, I like it here. Like, yeah. Even their hoods look nice. Like we're in the hood, like with palm trees. <laughs> so I remember like making commi- a commitment then, like I'm gonna have a place here at some point. So yeah. let me just let me just go go back to a cheap city, Philly, yeah. and stack some bread, like a lot of bread. And when I when I feel like I've stacked enough bread, I'll come and and buy something here. So in 2018 ish. 2018, 2019, I was finishing up on a four unit building that I did all cash. And I was like, you know what? These rent payments are sufficient for me to buy a place in in Cali. That would pay a Cali mortgage for me. So I'm going to dedicate this building in the hood to buying the place that I made a commitment to myself many, many moons ago. And so I didn't know, but I didn't know LA. I mean, I'd, I'd stayed out there, mostly hotels. I knew I couldn't afford. I love the the Beverly Wilshire. Um, yeah. So I, I couldn't afford around there, right? Yeah. Like right on Rodeo. <laughs> so I went online. It's always important for me to hire black and brown realtors, mortgage people, like, because no one looks for us, right? right? So I look for us. Right. So I um, found an agent and I've got a lot of friends that live in LA. That was also important because I got boots on the ground. I'm, yeah. always, I'm all the way in Philly. So I need to make sure I've got folks who can watch my projects. So I found an agent, talked to my friend, like what community, we, the three of us went to lunch, like where, sh- where should I be looking? So in my head, like I like weird people. Yeah. I like walkable. So in my head, I'm like, all right, for, for like 1.2 million, can I get like 2,500 square feet in WeHo? I'd like a pool in the back. I'd like, <laughs> I'd like, you know, I had like this whole list and they're looking at me like, are you crazy? Like, no, you can't get that here. So my friend, Eric, who ended up designing the place for me. He's like, I've got the perfect neighborhood for you. So he um, he showed me to, he actually showed me to a couple of neighborhoods, View Park, Baldwin Hills, Lamert Park, Ladera Heights, which are all predominantly affluent black neighborhoods, which I'd never seen anything like in the country. I'd certainly never seen anything like that in Philly. I mean, yeah. in Philly, predominantly black communities, you know you're in a predominantly black community. Right. I mean, it, it's not developed, it's rough. Yep. I'd never seen anything like View Park Baldwin Hill. I mean, I'm like, these black people are living. Yeah. I mean, it's it's like a hill of Huxtables. Yeah. Like, you, like you, you're standing outside your house, you know, neighbors walk up, hi, I'm a UCLA professor. My wife's a UCLA, UCLA professor. Like, you know, we're so happy to have you in the neighborhood. Like, I'm like, are you guys kidding? Like, what? where am I? Right? <laughs> so, bought the house. It, at the end, I offered end of 18, closed February 2019. It took uh, about a year to get permits and all my plans approved and all that stuff and then everything was approved march 2020 so perfect timing perfect timing yeah Yeah. so we started the build fortunately construction didn't stop there yeah fortunately my framing was done before lumber prices escalated because we basically tore the house down yeah and built it back which wasn't the original plan that was not the plan yeah now but in retrospect i guess i should have known that was the plan when i was like well i want vaulted ceilings i want a 20 feet extra on the master. I want to push the middle of the house out. I want to enclose steps that are... So I should have known that we were yeah. basically tearing the house down, but it's been been a process. It's been a costly process. It's a beautiful home. My mom came out, she retired, and then came and spent three weeks with me. And she's like, you showed me the pictures and videos. I had no idea it was this beautiful. And most of the finish work happened while I was in Philly. Yeah. When I came there the first time, when I tell you pictures and videos, just don't do it any justice. My mom, And I was like, is it just me? Like, my mom said the exact same thing. It's incredible. 
That's awesome. Yeah. Has our friend Moses come out to visit yet? He hasn't. He hasn't. He's certainly welcome and Moses, invited. Moses, if you're listening. Yeah, he's he's invited. Moses is absolutely invited. I'll, I'll see him at Reconvene. You coming to Reconvene? Yeah, I'll be yeah. at Reconvene. You're, you're welcome to come over. Yeah. Yeah, I'd love to have you guys over. I'd um, love it. Yeah, the, we're still working on the outside. There's a couple things in on the inside that we're still working on, but it's it's beautiful. Are you going to try and do business? Is LA for pleasure? Do you want to do business out there and buy out there? And cheap in LA is like... I don't really get the... Con- like, I get... The, the values increase ridiculous. I mean, like my value left left untouched would have probably been worth 150, 200,000 more than what I paid for it. Yep. Two years ago, the numbers out there, like for long-term rentals, I mean, I can make, again, I focus on cash flow, not appreciation. Yeah. Because if the appreciation, like if we, if nothing ever increased again, I want to be okay with cash flow. Yeah. So I actually don't know. I saw one of the questions, like what's next for me? What's my next move? Yeah. L.A. was actually the last property I purchased because in Philly, by 2018, a, a bunch of New York investors started coming in and I was like, oh, we are at the top. Like, yeah. this is it. Like, <laughs> I'm such a nervous investor. Like, I, I, like everything. Like, it's going to blow. So I stopped buying like dummy, like thinking, you know, we, we, we have to be at the top. We were not at the top. So what's next for me? I, I do a net worth review twice annually. Okay. I started in May, finalize it in June. I How started, do you do it? I mean, I, I basically go through all of my brokerage accounts, okay. cash accounts that I don't use fluidly, credit, uh, debt that I'm, that like, that's not like credit cards I pay off each month. And for properties, I do like a, a rough but conservative estimate based on recent comps. Yep. And, I, you know, it takes me a bit of time to kind of go through because I'm sometimes asking friends where agents send me, send me comps for neighborhoods. So it takes me... It takes me a little while. I started usually early May, like right around my birthday, May 5th. Yep. And it's usually done by June 30th. And then the same for November into de- into December. And it's kind of cool for me because it gives me, right as I'm having a birthday, what have you grown over a year? And then as we're transitioning into a new calendar year, have you grown year over year? So my last one, December, was like a smidge shy of that number. Years ago, I set a net worth goal for myself. I said, I, I had $5 million in net worth. I'm at, like, I'm done. I'm out of here. Blew through that. Blew through that. Because, you know, and, and it dawned on me, like, as a financial advisor, CFP, I'm always thinking, what can I get if, I, if I'm pulling off 4%, right? 5 million, 4%, 200 grand a year. <laughs> I, I need about 11,000, 12,000 a month to wake up in LA. Yeah. Right? To wake up. To wake up. Right? I'm not having a good time. Yeah. I'm like, <laughs> I'm grocery shopping. Yeah. With, you know, like, I'm, my dog is fed. Our needs are met. Yeah. You know, 11,000, 12,000 a month. So when I started thinking two and a grand, you know, that, that ain't enough. No. So then I had to increase that number quite a bit. And I'm like, kind of there. Yeah. Right. So. And you're 43. I'm 43. Right? You got a long way to go. Yeah. So, so the question, what's next? I'm like, do I God bless and good night at this point? Or do I? So a, a friend texted me not long ago, like, is your goal to be a billionaire? I'm like, no. And maybe if you'd ask me in my twenties when I was like spitfire grinding, like yeah. maybe, like maybe, I'm doing a, a call with the top black advisors in my company, and one of them said something like, "I attribute the fact that I will not be outworked to my success," and I've said that a gazillion times over my career, right? Like you just wouldn't outwork me, yeah, right? Like I'm gonna outwork you, like I had to as a young black advisor woman in a predominantly white male dominated industry yeah. that had to be my mantra. Yeah. Right. So 
when he said that, I was like, Ugh, still? Like, you know, that's where you are. At 43, I don't have the grind in me anymore to, like, you know how much it would, how, how much I'd have to work to get to a billion dollars. Like, seasoned, a seasoned billion is, a, is exponentially higher than young millions, right? Like, and I don't think that a lot of people realize that's a massive difference. But the truth of the matter is you're only 43. If you just let the world play out for 50 more years. <laughs> <laughs> You've seen Warren Buffett's chart. It's like. Da, 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 da. This is true. You know what? The compounding interest would have to do the work for me. I, I don't have it in me. I want to enjoy. And that's a part of the challenge of, of hitting it hard. And one of my tweets that went viral back in 2019 that I got quite a bit of flack for was basically that I sacrificed all of my 20s and even some of my early 30s, like working 60 to 80 hours every single week consistently. Yeah. I mean, I, I hit it hard just to have the flexibility to make the decisions that I have today. Yep. Like, do I just, I could just, all right, I'm done. I'm like, done. yeah, and live and live well. And that's something that drives me crazy when bust your ass in your 20s and 30s gets flack on Twitter or social media. Yep. It's not the people that have done it that are always giving shade to it. It's the people that aren't willing to do it and oh, are sure. still pissed that they're not where they're at. Sure. You have to bust your ass. I mean, look, I'm 34 years old. I've got more gray hair than most people. <laughs> Every single one of these is like a sleepless I night. Understood. Understood. Yeah. But I hate when people are just dissing on that. I, it is the way to get there. You have to outwork your competition or you have to win the genetic lottery. It's one or the other. Yep. And the, the crazy thing is, like, and I got so much flack about it. I never told anyone, like, you go do. That's what I did. It, it worked. Did. It, it worked for me. So what's next? I don't know. Are you going to run for politics? So the guy who was running against the in Your the message Re is so damn powerful. You know, but I hate politicians. Oh, I know. I do, too. Yeah, I hate them all. I don't like, trust them. And, and I, like, I, I often wonder, did you... Were you always a trash human being, Mr. <laughs> Mr. Politician, or did politics make you a trash human being? Like, so I saw a clip of the guy running against the California governor. I saw a clip where he'd said something silly, like about never running for politics. And I was like, well, that was stupid to say. So I'm, I'm, I probably shouldn't say that kind of thing because yeah. who knows? But no desire right now. Yeah. It's a thankless job and you get a lot of flack for it and... I don't want to be, a, I don't want to become or evolve into a trash human being. So how are you going to keep getting your, like, is, is the goal to keep getting your message out there? Yeah. I will always educate. Yeah. I'll always educate. I mean, I'll have more time to educate if, if I'm doing less. Yep. I've got a few more buildings left to renovate. I got one building in Philly that the neighbors are giving me flack. I'm trying to get it zoned from single family into, into a five unit. I got the NIMBYs from hell giving me flack on that. So I've got three more buildings that I need to, that I've been just procrastinating on that I need to to get done. And then after that, I mean, I'll have great, I'll have great cash flow and a place in LA and... Come to Texas. The yeah. water's warm down here. Is it? Start investing in Texas. You, you know, I, it's funny because I, um, I do like it here. I do okay. like, I mean, the people are great and I get it. I was at breakfast this morning and it's, I think people take for granted, like, you look around, I, there were a couple of tables of like business meetings going on and 
just black people like doing well. Yeah. I'm like, well, you look at this shit. Like, yeah. y'all, y'all live in here. Like, I love to see it. I mean, and people take that for, for granted. I mean, you know, maybe it happens a lot in, yeah. in, in other places, but I'm always utterly fascinated. And not to say that, like, you know, in Philly, we're all shooting each other. But when I go to cities that where I see black people thriving, it just, I love it. Yeah. When, I, when I go to DC and it's like, Every club is like a scene out of Boomerang. I'm yeah. like, this is just the most beautiful <laughs> shit I've ever seen in my life. So I don't know. I don't know what's next. Yeah. We'll see. How do how we how do we get rid of the nimbyism? Like, how does this end? Because there's so much potential to create more affordable housing, do a lot of cool shit, and we just can't seem to get out of our own ways. Actually, Moses will bring him up for the second time, posted something today about how politicians are like, we can't get 50 more units on this property. And then another politician asked why. And he's like, because we said so. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I don't I don't know what you do about crazy people. And I don't. The Internet gives them a voice, too. It does. And it's on one hand, they they will argue about like there's no affordable housing. Yeah. Like literally on this in the zoning meeting, this guy's like arguing about the fact that like there's not enough affordable units. And but no, we don't want you to convert this single family into a five. I'm like. And like, and, and I like, I don't know what to do about that. Like, yeah. you know, I, I argued my point. I argued. I remember like having friends in college who were looking for cheap housing in this neighborhood, but couldn't find one or two bedroom apartments. You know, because you're an MB. Like, yeah. you know, so I, I don't know what that solution is. Yeah. Other than investors being more vocal about the benefits. Yeah. You know, FinTwit, real estate Twitter, we get a lot of flack. And sometimes, understandably, yeah, I've been a dipshit on there many, many times. Me too. Yeah, it's me, fine. Me too. Yeah. No, I. We're I, real. Yeah. We're human. Yeah. No, I, and especially I've tried to like stop fighting with people on Twitter because I'm the like I'm the one that you say something slightly snarky to, and I go ballistic. <laughs> like, <laughs> like I don't know. I don't know what's wrong with me. So I think that we can probably also do a better job at not just being assholes. Yeah. And helping people understand the value that additional units bring to a community. Yep. All right. Let's have some personal questions and then you've been really generous. I've got five or six more for you. Okay. All right. March, 2020. Now we're here in August, 2020 or September, 2021. Now you've been in the market now for 20 something years. Yep. What has the last 18 months taught you about the world? Are you as confused as anybody else? Or like, how do you, do you see the world differently? I never imagined like something like this could happen. Yep. To me, it's all still very surreal. Yep. I'll walk into a room and see everyone in masks. Like, I can't believe this is happening to us. Yep. Like, it is surreal. And I've gone through so many phases of it's not happening to like, this is all just a joke to we'll be fine to we're all going to die. Yeah. To, you know, I've, I've gone <laughs> through every phase or you know, like the entire economy is going to collapse. Like how are, <clears throat> how are businesses going to remain shuttered? I, you know, I've got friends who've been out of work since March of, of 2020. I have friends who are like terrified. Yep. I know people who've lost. It's, it's been a challenge to say the least. I've been in my own ruts. I even noticed like myself in social media, there are days I, like I've got my draft folder is toxic the things that i never tweeted like just in this last 18 months of like i'm over this shit like i don't want to do anymore like i'm like i've there's all of that in my drafts 
You um, delete ninety percent of your tweets. Oh my too. gosh! Oh my gosh! <laughs> or I just I just put them in the draft. Yeah, Maybe I can like I later I can look at like how I was feeling. And I've I think I lost a bit of my own discipline too. Not so much with investing, although I I, I did get a little crazy um, when the market was going crazy in twenty twenty specifically. But just some of my own personal disciplines I lost. Some of it because I was my habits were disrupted. Yeah, gyms were closed. I mean, I I used to. I used to hit the gym every morning at 5 a.m. So when gyms were closed for like a year in Philly, yep. I lost some of that. And that's now what I'm trying to get back. Yep. I'm my heaviest I've been in probably 15 years. So yep. like I've got to like get, get back at get it, get back into that. So I, I need to do a little bit more like reading and meditating and, and personal mantras to kind of to get myself back to where I know I need to be. Yep. And then the financial markets. Are we in uncharted territory or like, what do you even think about that? I think it's wild that the markets are as high as they are. Yeah. I'm not a contra contrarian, yeah. you know, I'm not like one of those people tweeting last year, New York city's dead. Urban markets are dead. Yeah. You, you know, left that to me. What was that you? No, I'm kidding. Oh, <laughs> I was going to tweet the other day, but I didn't want to be a jerk. Like what happened with that? Like my apartment building in downtown Philly has one vacant unit. Yep. Are urban markets dead? Like do my do the other people in my building know? So I don't know. Well, yeah. yeah. I think we're all I'm my answer is I don't know. I think it's strange that the the equities markets are as high as they are. I mean, if you take into into consideration like the massive supply constraints, like this is not good. Yeah. Every day there's like a record breaking number of container ships stuck off the coast. I mean, like all of these just wild things that have been happening. I mean, we've gone through a lot in the last 18 months, everything from the pandemic and the variants of the virus to the ship being stuck in the canal. I mean, to now there's 56 container ships, I think I read, stuck off of the coast of Southern California. Like, yep. These massive hurricanes, like footage of Philadelphia. I was in LA, footage of Philadelphia are one of our main expressways, literally underwater, which I've never seen in my 43 years of life. Like all of this in 18 months, I'm like, like what's happening yeah. can we get a break just yeah, a little bit just a little bit yeah yeah the ships off the coast of la is is nuts and like i've been trying to buy a car for the last four months i can't like it might be another year before what i want is even available that's why i'm watching this like selfishly that's the only reason i'm really paying attention to the ships yeah. off the coast my i think my car is still somewhere i like watch the ship online but it's somewhere like coming up towards Mexico now. So it is, it's going to be probably one of the 70 ships stuck by the time it gets up there. Yep. I was on Twitter yesterday. Somebody said, I'm in the meat industry or the beef industry. And all I can tell you is start buying as much beef as you can because it's about to run out. And I'm like, wow, damn. Wow. It's crazy. It's very crazy and scary. So the fact that stock market's making money and like, I'm like, okay. Yeah. You know, but it's weird. It is. All right. How can uh, the Fort listeners spread the mud to millions message? Read the book. It's available on Amazon, Mud, the number two millions. It's also available like if you want to read it really quick. And it's a very fast read. Yep. It actually, it started out as a compilation of a tweet I did. Yeah. So I did the seven steps and it got so much traction. And a buddy of mine was like, like, you should just flush this out a bit. This is like a really, a really powerful message. So, I mean, you can, in hours, read the entire thing, start to finish. Okay. So no excuses. No excuses. Yeah. So it's on Amazon. It's also, there's also a digital copy on my website, mud2millions.com and it's the number two. Okay. 
Well, you kind of just said what your morning routine is, but do you have a morning routine? A lot, most successful people have something that gets them going during the day. Pre-pandemic, I'd wake up super early, hit the gym. I'd go to Home Depot. I'd look at like, you know, like <laughs> tie, like get ideas for like properties or pick up stuff or get stuff that I needed. During the pandemic, I'm like gin and tonic. Yeah. In the morning, just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. Like I'm trying to survive like everyone else. Yeah. Is. I try to like, now read good articles or you know just do something to to kind of get my my brain in gear get going yeah what's the the best advice you've ever been given best advice i've ever been given probably something buffett said like if you're not going to own it forever don't hold it for you know 10 minutes or 10 like yep buy it to keep it and that of course just resonates with me like yep. i am a holder it also keeps me away from you know, things that I, I know don't have value. It kept me away from AMC and the these crazy GameStop trades. And, yeah. And don't, like, I'm a money person, so I was tempted. Like, people are making a lot of money out there. But. Yeah. All right. I think I know the answer to this. But if you had a billboard on the busiest highway in Philly, or LA, maybe both, what would you put on the billboard for Own the world? Own some then? shit. Own some shit. Own some shit. I love it. Oh, yeah. That's going to be the title of this podcast episode. Oh, yeah. All right. How can people find you or reach you? Social media is the best place. Social media platforms. Um, mostly Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Aisha Selden on every social media platform. You're the boss. Thank you so much for Thanks coming for down me. today. This was awesome. Thank you. everyone, it's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please follow the show on Apple, Spotify, or subscribe on YouTube. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode. Chris Powers is the founder and chairman of Fort Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.